Well, last week when we were together, one of the things that we uh, noted was Paul's love for the Thessalonian believers. Paul and Silas and Timothy, we say Silas, I say Silas, we say Silas, Silas, whatever you want to call him. He's called Silvanus. So if we want his, form, his full name, it's Sylvanus, according to the New York State. I'm kidding. Um, but Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy are traveling. They're going from place to place. And they're going from place to place in order to proclaim the gospel of Christ. For Paul, he was a Jew. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was top of his class. And the Lord met him on the Damascus Road and changed his life forever. If you remember last week, we said that he came to Thessalonica. This is recorded for us in Acts chapter 17, where Luke tells us that they came to Thessalonica. They came to a magnificent city. This is a city that was proud of its heritage. It's a massive city that sat on a road that went from northwest to southeast on the Roman, in the Roman Empire. It was founded by uh, Queen Thessalonica, who was the half-sister of... Alexander the Great. And so we have this, if if you're wondering what makes the Thessalonians, I'm not talking about specifically the believers, but as a people, as a whole, if you're wondering what makes them tick, they're proud of their city. Mm. They're proud to be Thessalonian. They're proud to be part of the Roman Empire. They're proud to be in the city of Thessalonica. They have privileges that Rome has given to them where if anyone rocks the boat, those people get booted out of the city. And that's what Luke records for us in Acts chapter 17. So Paul comes, he comes and he reasons with the Jews every Sabbath day for three Sabbaths, three weekends, shares the gospel. And what does Luke tell us in Acts chapter 17? That not a, not, not a small number were converted. Many Greeks and many prominent women came to know Christ. And this sets the city in an uproar because if you look at what Luke says, Paul and his companions are being charged as enemies of the state. Remember, you rock the boat, you get kicked out. And so they didn't want anyone rocking the boat. You can come and worship whatever God you wanted, provided that it did not go against the decrees of Caesar. So the Jews were jealous. And this is not to say and condemn all of the Jews. So if you go to ShopRite today, if you go to wherever it is you go to today and you see a Jewish person, don't condemn them. But the Jews back then that didn't believe, and Luke makes it very clear, they were Jews who didn't believe. They were jealous and they took the time. They premeditated this action that they took to go into the streets, find the worst men, form a mob, form a riot, and come together and bring the entire city of Thessalonica into an uproar. And they tried looking for Paul and they couldn't find him. They tried looking for Silas, they couldn't find him. They tried looking for Timothy. So who do they get? They get the one person that offered hospitality to them, Jason. Jason's name incidentally means salvation, the Lord saves. It's the Greek version of Joshua. But they drag Jason out and they... Tell, they tell the magistrates, this man harbored enemies of the state. They are proclaiming a king other than King Caesar. And so you can imagine everyone's on edge in the city of Thessalonica. What's going to happen to our city? Is Rome going to come in? Is Rome going to take away our place in the empire? Are we going to forfeit our citizenship because of these men? We better be on the hunt for these men. So 
What do they do with Paul, Silas, and Timothy? They let him out by night. So here are some of the temptations that you would face as a congregation. Here you are, newly converted, and you hear that your pastor left town at nighttime. Didn't even say goodbye. If you're the husband of one of these women who came to this congregation and came to faith in Christ, you would say, why would you go to that meeting? Those men left by night, they don't care about you or the congregation. Why would you continue going to that meeting? Obviously, what they believe is considered dangerous, not only by the state, but look, the Jews. Jesus was a Jew, right? And even by his own people, he was condemned. So why would you continue going there? Why not just do what we always do? We sacrifice to the gods. We go to work. We keep our heads down. We work and we enjoy our privileges. Don't go back. Paul knows this. And this is why when you read 1 Thessalonians, and we've said this over and over again, you see the parental care that Paul has for the church at Thessalonica. He would lay his life down for this church. He loves the church, and he uses parental language for the Thessalonian believers. He loves them. And the question that we asked last week is, if you met someone who came to the Lord three weeks ago, would you lay your life down for them? Because Paul, Silas, and Timothy were ready to do that. And the reality is, how do you get... Again, this is, this is not a joke, but this is the reality of the people of God. How do you get a Jew and a Greek and an aristocrat, high-ranking nobility, together in one room for one single purpose, to love one another and worship the Lord? The only way possible is by the work of the Spirit, uniting the hearts, regenerating their hearts, and bringing them together, convincing them that Christ is who he says he is. And one of the realities, one of the greatest realities that's often ignored in the life of the church, in the churches today, if you look in the evangelical landscape, one of the realities that's, that's ignored is the fact that every single church lies in the crosshairs of danger all the time. All the time. And this is why we have letters. Paul writes to these churches in order to help them. These are the means that the Lord uses in order to build up his church. He writes to them. He preaches to them. He encourages them. He admonishes them. He wants them to be established and encouraged in his first letter. And now he wants them to be assured and admonished in his second letter. And he prays for them. So what is prayer? Prayer is the means by which the Lord accomplishes his will, both in this world and specifically in his church. Our shorter catechism asks, what is prayer? And it says it's an offering. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will. This presupposes that we know his will. This presupposes that we know him in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Prayer is the humble reliance that we have upon the Lord's strength. And it's the recognition that we cannot do the supernatural work that the Lord calls us to do in our own strength. In other words, when you look at the world out there and you tell the world to do something, they pick themselves up by the bootstraps and they do it. 
But then you look at the life of a Christian and you say, how do you do things? Well, we don't pick ourselves up by the bootstraps. We go to the Lord first for strength. And then we do. So we go in humble reliance to the Lord. And we say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. So if last week what we saw were three things, proximity, Paul's desire to be close to the people, maturity, he wants them to grow, and expectancy, the promised expectancy of Christ's coming. Today, what we'll see is Paul's purpose in his prayer. And I do this just so that you guys can remember it very easily. Purpose, he prays for God's provision of power for the prospect of the glory of the Lord. So let's look together at the purpose of Paul's prayer in verse 11. What is the purpose of Paul's prayer? What is Paul getting at? He says in verse 11, To this end, we always pray for you. You'll notice that he says always twice in this chapter. And then actually in chapter 2, he says in verse 13, But we, all, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. This, I, this constancy in Paul's mind for the Thessalonians is something that he can't get away from. He's always thinking about the Thessalonian believers. Now, you can call it obsession. You can say, Paul, get over it. Stop being so obsessed with those people. They have people over in Thessalonica that can care for their souls. Get over it. But that's not the heart of a pastor. A pastor loves the people of God. And this is by nature what a Christian looks like. Christians love to be in the company of other Christians because we know what God has done for us, what God has done to us, and how God is working through us. And so Paul is always praying for them. He says, to this end, we always pray for you. To what end? To what end? He is basing this prayer on the basis of verses 3 through 10. In verse 3, he gives thanks to the Lord because their faith is growing abundantly. Look at it right there. Verse 3. Your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. This is not a love that's scattered. That's loving just the Thessalonians just to love. This is a directed love at one another. Again, remember, Jew, Gentile, loving one another. This is unheard of. This is why in Ephesians, Paul says that God has broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile in Christ. And then he says in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Again, let's color it, with, color it in with some context. What are the afflictions that some of these guys are facing? Well, again, the husband doesn't believe, but the wife does. You have a lot of money. You are top-ranking nobility. This is what Luke says in Acts 17. You go home. Your, your husband is there sacrificing to the God of agriculture. Today, we would say, okay, that's kind of weird. That's strange. We don't do that. We do that in different ways today. But back then, the wife comes home and she sees that. And she says, I don't know how to submit to my husband. Or you flip it around. The husband believes, but the wife doesn't. And now you've got a situation in the home where the kids are torn apart. Dad believes one thing, mom believes one thing, what do we do? And then you have arguments that come up, tensions that rise because people are different, right? Mm -hmm. Or you go to work. 
And when you go to work, you realize that part of being at work and sacrifice is, is a sacrifice to the God of your trade guild. And if you don't participate in the work party, guess what? Your, ball, your boss calls you up, not on the phones because they didn't have phones back then. But he calls you and he says, can I talk to you for just a minute? We sacrifice to the gods of the seas and you, are sacri- you don't want to partake in this? Well, here's notice. You don't sacrifice, you don't eat. You don't eat, guess what? You're out of a job. Make your decision. Go home. How's work today? <laughs> what are you going to say? might be out of a job. So what does Paul give thanks for? Their love is growing for one another. And what did we say love was last week? It's based off of Christ's love. So it's the inconveniencing of our own desires for the help of other people. Other specifically, not just people, but other believers. So that when you hear that your brother and sisters are suffering or going through hard times, you say, look, I wish that I can get some rest now, but they need me. And you find everything that you can do to help out your brother and sister. And so to this end, Paul goes on and he, he, he boasts about this congregation. He talks about how the Lord is going to repay all of those people who are inflicting any sort of affliction on them with afflictions themselves. And he promises eternal rest for his people. It says that in verse uh, in, in, in verse 7 and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and so when the Lord comes he'll do two things he will exact vengeance on all those who are disobedient and afflicted his people and he will give rest to his people and so to this end verse 11 here we are back again the purpose of what Paul is getting at to this end we always pray for you Prayer is based on the character of God. And Paul knew this. Paul knew the Lord. And I said last week again, the deeper we go in knowing the Lord, the more biblically informed our prayers will be. It's good to be praying for people's needs, physical needs. But what do you see Paul praying for all the time? For their steadfastness. So if the Lord gave you all of your needs, will you remain steadfast? If the Lord gave you healing for your back, will you remain steadfast? Or will you take that as an opportunity to go right back? When the temperature gets turned up in your life and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter, will you go back or will you remain steadfast? And this is why in Paul's letter, in the first letter, in chapter 3, he says, we were anxious. I could take it no longer. I needed to know how you guys were doing. So I sent Timothy, a faithful brother. So to this end, this is the purpose that Paul is praying. But notice what he prays for. This is the provision that, that he's praying for. He prays that the Lord would make them worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Now, worthy of his calling. Does that mean that the Lord would, that he's praying that somehow they would do something and garner the Lord's favor in a moment? No. This is a vindication of their status before the Lord. 
that the Lord would conform them into the image of Christ, that he would work in them and he would purge every sin, weaning them off of the desires and the cares of this world so that they are more and more conformed to Christ so that when Christ comes, the world will see the Lord's work of salvation in his people as the Lord himself has purified them and sanctified them and set them apart for that great day. And in that day, all of God's people will be counted worthy, declared to be worthy by the Lord himself. And this is why we say salvation belongs to who? To God, to the Lord. So he prays that the Lord would make them worthy of his calling. This sounds exactly like what he says in Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read that for you. Ephesians chapter 4, what does Paul write to the believers at Ephesus? He says, I therefore, and he's in chains now, he's in prison. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, not Caesar, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Mm. So this idea of walking worthy, this idea of being worthy of the Lord and being counted worthy is not only that we are endeavoring to keep this unity, but the Lord is at work in us, strengthening us in every direction that we go. And so he says that we would be counted worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So the provision for power is what he's praying for. Why? Because in order for you to do the things that the Lord has put on your heart, you can't do it on your own strength. So you wake up one day and you say, you know, I need to get really, I need to get better at prayer. I'm going to pray today. At some point, I'm going to make it a point to pray today. And then at the end of the day, you go back, to, you go to sleep and you're laying your head down on the pillow and you realize, I didn't pray today. Mm-hmm. Or someone, the Lord puts someone on your heart. You start thinking about someone in the church and you have the prayer guide. You see the need that the congregation has and you say, man, I wonder how they're doing. Maybe I should call them. And then three days pass and you never called them. Or you say, you know what? I think I'm a little flimsy when it comes to knowing God. Maybe I should pick up. I'm not a seminary student. I'm not, I don't have the brains to be a seminary student, but I just need to know the Lord a little more, a little deeper. So let me buy some commentary or something like that just to familiarize myself with the scripture. And then six months pass and you haven't picked up your Bible once. How do we accomplish the things that the Lord calls us to do? How do these resolutions for good and every work of faith happen? Well, the Americans would say, just do it. Just do it. What's wrong with you? Stop slacking. Stop being lazy. Do it. And to a certain degree, that there is some truth in that. We do need to just do it at some points. But the difference between the Christian and the world is that the Christian says, I, can, I, I, I need to do this and I will do it. But let me go to the Lord and ask for the strength to do that. Mm-hmm. How is Paul and Silas and Timothy going to get to the Thessalonians? 
by the strength of the Lord, by the power of the Lord. How are they going to pray for the Thessalonian Christians? By the power of the Lord. How are you going to show up on Wednesday nights to pray for one another? By the power of the Lord. How are you going to clear your schedule to make the saints of God at the haven a priority for one another? By this power and the strength of the Lord. How are you going to invite people into your homes like Jason took in Paul, Silas, and Timothy? How are you going to invite them into your homes and provide hospitality for your brothers and sisters who are sitting right here in front of you by the power of the Lord? And when you come to the Lord, you realize that there is this war in you. This is what Romans 7 is all about. You see that there are the things that you want to do that the Lord gives to you. And there are the things that you don't want to do. You, don't, you want to please the Lord and you want to satisfy the flesh. And these two are contrary to one another. And you say, Lord, I don't have the strength to fight against the desires of my flesh. Give me the strength. Help me. Because I'd rather be sitting down watching sports than calling someone and seeing how it's going to be too involved, Lord. I don't want to do that. Well, this is what love looks like. And we do this by the Lord's power. So if he's praying with purpose, if he's praying for the provision of God's power in the life of these Thessalonians, this is not just for the Thessalonians way back when, and we can just say, oh, that's cute. That was for them. We're a different context. No. This is for us today. So that now, as we look and we pray with purpose, we are looking at the provision, for the provision that God provides, for the prospect of the Lord's glory. And that's what he says in verse 12. If all of these are, all of these are kind of building up, building up, building up to verse 12, so that at the summit of his prayer, of his desire, what you see is that the name of our Lord Jesus, notice he doesn't say my Lord Jesus or your Lord Jesus, but he says our Lord Jesus because they're in this together. He says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified by you. Nope. Through you. Nope, in you. It's not that the Lord is going to take your works and be glorified just through them on the last day and say, well, I'm glad I used you. I'm glad you were there. You were dispensable. If you didn't do it, then I would have found someone else. One time my, my wife and I were, were traveling and we met some people. We were going to go snorkeling. Never been snorkeling. It turned out it was a crazy experience. But, <laughs> but here... Uh, some lady got into a conversation with me about, you know, where we're from, and I started telling her about, you know, we're part of a church and all this. And she says, I believe in God, and I believe that God can use anybody. She said, I believe that God can use anybody, and God doesn't need us anyway. He can find, if I don't do what God wants me to do, he'll find someone else. Well... True, the Lord is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anybody, but the Lord chooses to do His work in His people. Amen. And not only does He choose to do His work in His people, but look at what verse 12 says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. There is a branding of His people with His name on you. So that when He looks at you, He says, Mine. Not the world's. This is why we see that the Lord is a jealous God. Don't touch my people. This is why the Lord's anger burns against sin, especially when his people are engaged with sin. 
Whenever we engage with sin, this, is, this grieves the Lord because you belong to a holy God. You've been set apart by Him. And so He says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and notice the union of the saints with Christ and you in Him. I want to read for you John chapter 17, the Lord's high priestly prayer. Because the Lord said, this is, this is the Lord's prayer. The Lord says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Now this is Jesus praying to the Father. He says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Imagine the love between the Father and the Son from all eternity, now spilling into a covenant communion with his saints. And now this is Paul's prayer, that the name of the Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus, would be glorified in you and you in him. The doctrine of the communion of the union the doctrine of the union of the saints with Christ is probably one of the most important doctrines you will ever, ever know. You go to any other evangelical church, this is not to knock churches, but this is to say, if you look at the landscape again of evangelicalism, you'll see that it's full, full, all, it's very wide, but it's very deep. How many times have you heard people talking about your union with Christ? Mm. Our confession, again, going back to our confession, says that even when we die, our bodies are still united to Christ. And He raises those bodies up on the last day. Again, you see the union, the doctrine of the union of the saints with our Lord in John chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Or... We can go to another example, Acts chapter 9. Paul himself on the road to Damascus, persecuting the churches, trying to wipe them off of the face of the planet. And Jesus appears to him and he doesn't say, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the churches at, at Syria? Why are you persecuting the churches in Ephesus? He says, why are you persecuting me? What this means for you and for the Thessalonians is that... Every grievance that you have, the Lord knows it. Every heartache that you go through, the Lord understands that. Every single trial that you go through, every affliction that you are undergoing, the Lord knows that. And you are united to Him and He promises that His grace will be sufficient for you. This is why He says at the end, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because grace comes because you are united to Him. Well, give me something practical. That's what the world would say. Give me something practical. How do we live that out? Well, you go to work tomorrow and you find out that one of your coworkers had, uh, has a child that passed away. How are you going to comfort them? I cannot even imagine how people can comfort other people apart from Christ. How are you going to comfort someone who dies? Well, you can't because they're dead. But how are you going to comfort their family? How are you going to give any sort of help and consolation to people who are undergoing 
trials and afflictions in Thessalonica. Don't worry, it's going to be better. Just think positive, positive thoughts. No, positive thoughts didn't work for the Thessalonians. It was by being steadfast on Christ himself. Purpose, provision, and prospect. And this makes us ask the question, what are we praying for? How are you directing your prayers? What do your prayers look like? What does your prayer life look like? Some of us, we stumble in our prayers. We don't even know what to say. There are times when I'm upstairs and I'm saying, I don't even know where to begin with praying. And Satan comes in and says, well, you're a seminary student. You should know. The Lord comes and he gives grace. And how do we know that? Because he says it. My grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. The purpose of our prayer should be aimed at the power of God in our lives with the prospect of his glory. And to be more specific, let's, let's get a little more specific. When we go to the Lord in prayer for one another, what must be front and center in our prayer is that the Lord would enable each and every one of us to grow in the knowledge of our Savior, to be satisfied by the Lord himself, and that the Lord would give us all of the power and all of the strength to do what pleases him. So when you shake someone's hand and you're listening in on the conversation that they're having with you and, you're, and you know that they're your brother and sister, underneath your breath you're saying, Lord, give them the strength to persevere. During the week as you're driving on, on Veterans Highway and you're going to work or you're on one of the major highways on the parkway and you're saying, Lord, please give my brothers at the Haven and my sisters at the Haven strength to persevere to the end. Yeah, it's a shock to Jasmine and me that we were part of a church at one point and um, before we met, we were part of two uh, churches and we were very involved in the, in the life of our church. We were involved, I was playing guitar and playing drums and, you know, the Baptist church and um, we had a lot of friends that, that professed faith in Christ. Today, not one of them, maybe one, is walking with the Lord. And you wonder, how does that even happen? How does it happen? Well, you can step back and you can open your systematic theology and you can say, well, God didn't choose them. Close the book, we're done. But if you have a heart and a pulse, (laughs) you'll say, well, we need to pray for one another that God would give them the grace to persevere to the end. That the Lord would give them the grace to persevere. Again, going back to our confession of faith, I want to read for you what our confession says on the perseverance of the saints. They whom God has accepted in his beloved, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. And this depends not upon their free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of salvation. Again, we can go back and we can say, okay, the Lord chose them and the Lord will cause them to persevere. 
But then the third, cha- the third chapter in the Confession of Faith on the Perseverance of the Saints. If you have the Confession, read this. Read it today for your Lord's Day reading, whatever you want to do. It says, Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of other preservation fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve the Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt, and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. And the reason why that's there in our confession is because when people fall into sin, Satan comes and he says, well, you've sinned yourself out of grace again. How will you know if you are going to make it to the end? Only believers care about their, the fact that they've fallen. Yeah. Interesting. Only believers care about that. Mm. How did the Thessalonians know that they are going to make it to the end? Well, the Lord has provided means. Paul prays. Timothy prays. Silas prays. They show their love. And now we see the work of the Spirit as their love for one another grows. Let that be our desire for the haven. Because you look at each other, as you talk to each other after the service, during the week. Let that be your love, your desire, your aim. Lord, knit my heart together with this person. The Greek will say, I've never grown up with a Jew. I don't know what it's like. So we don't have anything in common. We can't really relate. So I'll let the Jew hang out with the Jew and I'll hang out with the Greek who grew up on my block. That's not how a Christian talks. A Christian says, you're different and I'm different, just like Christ is so much different from me, but he's working in me to conform me into the image of his son. And so, Lord, help me to find some inroads with my brothers and sisters. So, purpose, provision, and the prospect of the Lord's coming and glorification. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this time. And Lord, we pray that you would knit our hearts together. Oh Lord, how much we need you. And we need to grow in praying for one another, just as our Lord prays for us. We thank you for his intercession. And we pray that you would make us more and more like Christ by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.